Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Joining the show today to discuss how he's navigating this year's market environment within the context of a liquid alternative strategy is Brett DeLay, Portfolio Manager. Brett joined Fidelity in 2008 as a research analyst and initially covered a variety of sectors and managed those sectors' respective component of Fidelity Canadian Disciplined Equity Fund. In 2019, regulatory changes created an opportunity for Brett to use his unique skill sets to lead a new liquid alternative strategy, Fidelity Market Neutral Alternative Fund. Today, Brett joins host Rory Poole, Director Alternatives, to share the thesis behind his fund and comment on how he's seeking to find winners and capitalize on the potential losers. Brett also explains how a long-short strategy may be successful in periods of volatility and where he is seeing opportunities in the second half of 2023. This podcast was recorded on June 22nd, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. I wonder if we can kick things off just starting high level. I, I'll talk about it at the end, but the, the, the regulars of Yuri and Timur and Denise, who usually come on this show for the purposes of discussing like more of the macro narrative or looking at the market through more of a quantitative lens. Um, we'll share their thoughts over the coming week or so, but I think the folks at home uh, always like to hear a little bit about how each, in, each portfolio manager is individually kind of assessing the market right now. So can we maybe just talk a little bit about like what's transpired thus far in 2023 and how are the kind of current market dynamics shaping how you're thinking about investing on a go forward basis? Sure. 2023, I think, had a pretty good start to the year. But actually, if you look under the hood, it's maybe less good than, than the market indexes would show. And so the, uh, the market has been driven, the S&P in particular, by basically seven stocks. There's seven large cap tech stocks. And the rest of the market is up a tiny little bit to flat. It's not really doing much. I believe the focus of the start of the year has been on the Fed, as it has been for basically the last two years. And, but this time, the narrative is a bit more... I think we're closer to the end of the hiking cycle than the beginning. And I think that's true. That's just factually correct. And what that has led to has been obviously the large cap tech rally. And in addition, what we've seen under the hood is some of the cyclicals, the more torquey stuff that has been really beaten up has actually uh, outperformed some of the safer, higher quality, but generally more expensive stocks. And then, of course, there's two big letters that are driving everything, and those are AI. And I'm sure we'll get to that later. Yeah, let's pause there. I, I definitely want to uh, get your thoughts with respect to that. Uh, seems like it's the, the biggest buzzword out there. But that's a great synopsis. I think that relatively narrow leadership thus far this year. Still lots happening in the background in relation to like how the market is see foreseeing the next kind of six to 12 months. And you have to be certainly cognizant of that, especially as an investor such as yourself. Let's talk about the fund. So Fidelity Market Neutral Alternative Fund. Um, maybe we can just walk through kind of high level structure, your philosophy towards it, and really your philosophy towards investing. So the Fidelity Market Neutral Alternative Fund is, in my opinion, it's a true hedge fund. 
And what I mean by that is we are 100% hedged. So we take every dollar that gets invested into the fund, we go $1 long, and we go $1 short for a net exposure of zero. So what that means is the fund is designed and, and how we execute the fund is to make sure it has zero correlation with the underlying equity markets because the net exposure is zero. So whether the markets go up a lot or down a lot should not have much bearing on the performance of the fund. And the way that we've structured the fund is through a series of pair trades. So what in general I do is I go long one stock and short two or three or one similar types of stocks against it that would have very different return profiles. And what I'm trying to do is hedge out whether it's interest rate risk, commodity risk, recession, no recession, you name it, and just focus on the pure differences between the stocks that I'm long and the stocks that I'm short and make sure all the returns that the fund generates comes from pure idiosyncratic stock picking. And you mentioned, so kind of equal parts long or short, similar dollar values long and short. Is, is that kind of static or is that something that changes over time? Like, are there moments when you have more short exposure or more long exposure, like within the context of the goal of the fund, maybe that's something that you can comment on. Yeah, so no. So we are, a, we are making sure this product is purely idiosyncratic, doesn't have any beta, does not track stock markets. We're not making a call on whether we're more positive or less positive. This is not a directional bet in either direction. This is purely a fund that we use equities to generate returns on a pure stock versus stock basis. Okay, that's great. You mentioned pair trading, a concept that might be familiar to some folks, I think, at home, but maybe not others. You talked a little bit about kind of what that looks like in terms of when you take that dollar in or that $100 in, it's simultaneously going long and short that dollar amount. But maybe you can walk us through a bit of an example of what that potentially looks like. I, I think that that usually helps investors almost draw a bit of a picture in their mind or kind of further helps illustrate what you're doing uh, at the security level within the fund. Yeah, so a pair trade to me is allows me to focus on what I call relative value investing. And that's what I'm doing. I'm not particularly concerned if the stock that I'm long and the stock that I'm short both go up or both go down. What I'm hoping to achieve is the stock that I'm long goes up more than the stock that I'm short or down less. So it's not a market call. It's not even a directional call on the stocks. It's a call between the differences between the two. And so an example of a pair trade um, that I'll highlight is one that I've had on for a little while is uh, something we're all familiar with would be long Google and short Visa. And so these are both large cap, very large cap, mega cap tech stocks. They're both great companies. They have wide moats. They're very good quality companies. And so when I, when I constructed this pair trade, Google was at the start of the year was trading at 13 times earnings. I think it's a very attractive price. Cheap. Yeah, it's cheap <laughs> for what is a great company. Why was it trading at 13 times earnings? A lot of headwinds, a lot of fear, and it was universally hated. At the end of November, as we're all aware, something called ChatGPT got announced. Oh, yeah. And the first use case was kind of conversational search, and the company is indirectly owned by Microsoft. So what that led people to believe was Google, which has been the monopoly in search, the one we all use on our phones, uh-oh, what if their place in the world is not as secure as we thought it was? What if they start to lose share to Microsoft because Microsoft has ChatGPT? If that's the case, Google will, is, could be behind on AI. So not only are they going to lose share, they're going to have to spend a bunch of, bunch of money to catch up. They, all, they always Google. They have all these other side projects that they're blowing money on too. And so universally hated, 
stock, stock sounded bad, the narrative sounded bad, everything sounded terrible. But I thought about this in January, and I thought this case, this setup, was remarkably similar to another large cap tech company that had the same fears about three months earlier, and that was Meta or Facebook. So in November, Facebook was trading at 12, 13 times earnings, and there was fear that they were losing share in their most important product, which was Instagram. They were losing share to TikTok. They were wasting money on an unprofitable project, the metaverse, and they were going to have to invest a bunch of AI to catch up to TikTok's algorithm. The exact same thing that people were worried about with Google. Uh, Facebook proved everybody wrong. They cut spending on the metaverse. They optimized costs. They proved that they are a leader in AI, and the stock has tripled. So that was my base case for Google, and that's what I thought could happen. And I think we're starting to see it play out. The short side of the, the trade is Visa. Like I said, great company, nothing wrong with Visa. However, Google was at 13 times earnings. Visa was at 25. Every other consumer-related stock in 2022 traded off dramatically. Visa held in just fine. But the reason that the consumer-related stocks traded off was the consumer is going to have less money to spend because there's inflation, there's interest rates, all the bad things we know about. That is going to show up in Visa. You spend money on your credit card. If you spend less money, that's less revenue for Visa. Stock was not pricing that in at all. So fast forward to today. They've both been pretty good stocks. Visa's up about 10%. However, Google is up 40%. So in this case on the pair trade, we've profited the difference between the two, which is 30%. Mm -hmm. Similar type of stocks, great quality companies. Both are up, but the stock I'm long is up a lot more than the stock I'm short. That's exactly what I'm trying to do over and over again in this fund. That's a great example. And obviously two names that resonate with a lot of people at home, whether they're actually consumers of their products or uh, or just certainly know them by name. You mentioned a lot of stuff there, uh, like things like valuation, particular like stock specific catalysts. Is it a variety of things that can kind of prompt putting on those trades? Or is it usually one thing versus that of the other? So it could be a variety, but typically, they would be either uh, differences in growth outlooks or big differences in valuation. So in this case, it was a valuation difference. There's other cases where stocks could be uh, similar stocks trading at the same kind of multiples, mm -hmm. but one could be growing 30% for the next three years and the other one I think can grow like maybe half that or 10%. So that's a scenario where I kind of think about these stocks as like a car dealership. So the Google versus Visa scenario, they're both great companies. But Google's priced like a Chevy and Visa's priced like a Porsche. In the other scenario where both stocks are expensive, mm -hmm. but one is growing faster and has better profitability than the other, I think there's two cars that are both priced like a Porsche, but one is actually a Chevy. And that's the way I kind of think about this. For what it's worth, I drive a Chevy. So nothing, nothing <laughs> against anybody that drives a Chevy. And it sounds like those like idiosyncratic events. So like for instance, if they were to have a management change, maybe that reprices one of those names to become a different type of car, if you will, Absolutely. within that analogy. And then that's prompting what you mentioned in terms of like valuation or, or a potential mismatch between the two really driving or acting as a catalyst for the for the trade. Curious though, what, what fuels the trades? Like, I mean, are the ideas come from you? Is it the research team? Is it a combination of both? Maybe kind of walk us through your day-to-day -day in terms of like, how does one of these trades kind of come about. Yeah, so I, th I think it's both. And I, and I assume that's the case for pretty much every portfolio manager here. But it's not particularly different in any way than anything we've done at Fidelity since I've been here, which is 15 years. And so I started off as an analyst, as basically every single one of our Canadian PMs did. And the job of an analyst is you are given a sector, 
and you're looking at a bunch of different stocks in that sector, and some can be very similar, and you're identifying on a scale what are buys and what are sells. So you could be looking at, for example, I covered the railroads. Um, at one point I had one railroad was a buy, another railroad was a sell. They're both railroads. They trade on many of the same factors, but one was growing faster, had a better outlook, new management, et cetera. So that's what our analysts are doing every day. And you can call that whatever you want to call that, but to me, that's a pair trade. So I use our research in the same way that everybody else does, the same way our resources have been used for the last 15, 20 years. And I just look at it with a bit of a different lens and we've structured a fund around it. So pretty ideal for, for your purposes, it's at a, least the way that the research is set up. Our research process is, is bottom-up stock picking yeah. and this fund is trying to identify returns based on bottom-up stock picking. That's great. Let's kind of take the example that you went over, as well as a bit of the general concept of the fund that we've discussed and try and create a little bit of a visual around it in terms of what that creates from an investor experience standpoint. Sure. So large down days in the market. Mm -hmm. In this case, it's any day where the market was down a, about a percent or more. Yeah. And the fund's performance, even on days where the market was down and the fund in some cases was up or in some cases it was down just a little bit. The direction and the magnitude of the change in the market should have very minimal impact on the returns of the fund because we've hedged all those exposures out. Mm -hmm. Like last year, so 2022, a year where the, the market, broadly speaking, at least defined by the kind of S&P 500 universe um, was down quite materially. But uh, same could probably be said about the flip side, like more extreme up market scenarios, that dispersion of return, if you will, of the funds. I mean, it's, it's not always... Uh, cut and dry every single day necessarily, but is, is it a similar, would you envision a similar type of graph in that instance? Yeah, I think it would look the exact same. Okay. And so to be clear, right, this is not a, a directional bet. This is not a bear market fund where we need the market to go down yeah. for the fund to perform. This is not a bull market fund where we need the market to go up. It's agnostic. That's the whole point. Yeah, I think it's kind of refreshing because I mean, I, I, I think of metrics that I, a lot of investors um, evaluate, which is a great thing, but maybe obsess over sometimes, like like the upside downside captures of the world. And I mean, it's, it's I don't want to say it's irrelevant on your fund, but it's certainly less of a an indicator maybe of potential success within the portfolio. What you seem to be trying to achieve is like that relative degree of consistency, regardless of the time period and not necessarily being tied to the overall outcome associated with the market. That's right. We're trying to generate absolute returns independent of the market direction. Fair enough. I want to go back to what we kind of talked about at the start, which was the structure. You mentioned 100% long or uh, equal dollar parts long, long and short. That process, so if you're buying $100 worth of stock, you're then simultaneously shorting $100 worth of stock. I assume that that short produces about $100 of cash because yep. you're technically selling the stock into the market and then receiving cash as a result of that. So a bit of a two-part question. One, what happens with that cash? So is it reinvested? Does it sit on the side? And two, given the environment that we've been in, like the, the fact that in, interest rates have gone up so drastically over a short period of time, like what impact has that had on the fund? Yeah, so that's exactly right. So, uh, you know, when we buy a stock, I think we all know the mechanics of what happens there. Yeah. When you short a stock, you're selling it and you get cash proceeds. Those cash proceeds come back into the fund. We invest them into Government of Canada, very liquid overnight securities, plain vanilla, nothing crazy. Um, and so what that means is on that $100 of proceeds we've received from our short sales, we're earning a return at the mm -hmm. Canada overnight rate. For the first year and a half of this fund, 
that didn't really matter because interest rates were so low. It wasn't meaningful. Interest rates are a lot higher now. It's actually a very meaningful yield pickup. So kind of the way that I think about this is uh, we've got the stock picking and the alpha we're generating through stock picking. And then you've got you know a yield, like a bit of a money market product hidden within this fund. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. And I think that that's probably important to, to mention the way that you did mention it, which is the fact that the lion's share of the portfolio is focused on what you're focused on most, yeah. right? Which is this pair trading exercise and it's generating relative value amongst securities. However, there is this kind of, we've referred to it in the past as a bit of a sweetener, if you will, yeah. which has gotten a little bit more advantageous, if you want to call it, over the course of the past kind of 12-ish yeah. months. It's a good thing for, for the fund. That's great. We talked at the beginning about the fact, or you kind of alluded to the fact when we gave a little bit of a synopsis of what's transpired thus far in 2023, about the fact that we've we've seen a very drastic change in terms of market leadership, at least from like a gig sector standpoint, yeah. from last year to this year. One of those places that without argument has been uh, the most heavily affected has been the area of tech. Yeah. I know that you have a fair amount of exposure and are uh, are someone that's been a pretty successful tech investor in the past. Like, how are you thinking of that space right now, uh, as well as transitioning from last year? And how has that kind of impacted the fund? Yeah, so let's let's talk about the impact to the fund sure. because I think that level sets everything. So 2022, awful year for tech. I think we all understand that the Nasdaq was down 32, mm percent -hmm. and if you play in the sort of high growth, high multiple areas. Those stocks were down, you name it, 60 to 80%. Basically, calendar year this year, 23, it flipped on its head. Now the NASDAQ, I believe, is up, I think, 39%. And the unprofitable, high growth, high multiple area of the market, again, they're pretty much up 60 to 80%. So basically, 2022 is the mirror image of what happened in 2023. So completely upside down. In 2022, the uh, tech market was awful the highest contributing sector in this fund was tech. So again, it's that relative stock picking. A lot of the stocks went down, which is just fine. I don't particularly care. As long as the stocks I was long went down less than the stocks I was short. And that's what happened. And that's how we generated positive returns, even though the sector was awful. This year, it's the opposite. Sector has been very good. Tech is now, it's not my top performing sector. It's my second best performing sector. And so even in this market, which is very different, where everything's going up and there's a lot of exuberance, we're making money. Again, because we've hedged out the risks to tech and valuations and interest rates specifically, and we've purely focused on the difference between stocks A that I'm long, stock B that I'm short. And in both directions, up a lot, down a lot, we're generating positive returns, which is exactly what this fund aims to do. Yeah, and I mean, I think that that speaks a lot to, to your product in the sense that, I mean, you alluded to the fact that it's, it's stocks driving return over time. Yeah. I mean, you do not have, whether you want to call it the benefit or the curse of relying on beta or the performance of the overall market. So when you go through periods where you've, you've done extremely well, like for instance, over the course of the past year, even going back beyond that, the odd time when you go through a shorter period when you struggle, like it's very evident within the product. And that just has to do really with stock picking at the end of the day. The vast majority, I mean the vast, vast, vast majority of returns from this fund come from stock picking. That's good to know. I want to stay in tech, but I want to talk about, as I said, the biggest elephant in the room hmm. with respect to the sector right now. Going through earnings calls over the course of the past quarter or so, like you must hear the word AI or the acronym AI like a countless amount of times. And 
I'd imagine that there's some companies out there that are very truthful about it. There's some companies out there that are probably blowing smoke to that of their uh, their shareholders uh, or anyone who is uh, is producing media on behalf of the business. But like, what are you thinking about in terms of that space right now? And probably more importantly, like, is it investable? So I think it is. And I'm like super excited about this theme, both from the long side and the short side. I think there's going to be huge dispersion. There's going to be some very large winners. And there's going to be a bunch of companies that stocks are probably elevated because of this hype cycle we're in right now that are going to be losers and it's just not going to show up. So you mentioned earnings calls and transcripts. For the average tech company that I listened to on the transcript, I think they said AI between 20 and 30 times. <laughs> Two weeks ago, our tech team spent a week on the West Coast, so between Seattle, San Francisco, and the Bay Area. Yeah. We had 28 meetings. AI was brought up in 26 out of those 28 meetings, unprovoked. The average time that it took for AI to be brought up was six minutes. And in 10 of those meetings, the CEO or the CFO brought up AI within the first minute and a half. Those are some stats. So it's hyped, right? <laughs> it's hyped. We're talking about it. I do think it's real, but it's definitely not real for everyone. I think back several years ago, not Bitcoin, but do you remember with the blockchain craze? Yep. Company would say blockchain. They'd say we're introducing a blockchain product. The stock would go up 20%. Sure. And basically 95% of those companies came out with nothing and went to zero. I think we're setting ourselves up in the same way. So there's some real winners. NVIDIA is clearly a winner. Microsoft is a winner. Mm -hmm. Oracle is a winner. There's a whole bunch of uh, companies that I don't think are winners that'll have nothing and they're trading up and they're, they're hyping it up. And those are going to be great short candidates. So I'm really excited. We're going to make a lot of money on this. And, that, and that's like, uh, just to kind of further that thought, that's potentially like what, two, three, four quarters down? Because it sounds like what you're saying is that you're, you're kind of looking at it as, hey, you know what, I'm extremely excited and there is certainly profitable opportunities as it relates to this area. But there's still a lot of froth, stuff that I can't control, yeah. stuff that I can't necessarily predict, obviously, over the course of like, let's call it a short to medium term basis. And so let's let that wash away. And then kind of when the tide goes out, then you can actually formulate some ideas and, and put some money to work. Yeah, that's right. Now, I've got like one or two that I'm short. Okay. Um, and that's going to get a, a lot bigger and become a lot more important part of the portfolio over the next one to two quarters. One question that comes up a lot, I know, in relation to your strategy, we've been talking about equal parts long and short, being pretty neutral as it relates to uh, exposures from, let's call it a, a growth standpoint within the long and the short portfolio or from a sector standpoint, as we were talking to as it relates to tech. One thing that that people, I think, notice is the fact that it's not perfectly equal, like right. in, in the sense that you've got your long exposure, again, to use the tech example, within tech, you've got your short exposure within tech. If folks were to go onto the Fidelity.ca website, yeah. they would see that it might be a little bit different at certain times and the net difference may be either positive or negative. Can you talk, speak a little bit towards that? Like what causes that? in the portfolio and is it something that you you kind of keep an eye on or is it something that is less so of a worry i keep an eye on it and there, there's three things the first one is technical um sometimes what I, what i think is a tech company which is a tech company is just classified as something else sure so a lot of these are classified in financials but they're fintech so that's just like noise um the second one would be there are times where i definitely go cross sector um, but when i do that I'm making sure that the uh, the exposures or what drives the companies are very similar, very correlated, so that I'm not taking on uh, like additional risk other than stock picking. So an example of this would be 
um, Canadian telcos versus Canadian utilities. They're different sectors, so it's going to yeah. show up like that. But they're both defensive and driven by interest rates. So the drivers are the same, but they're in different sectors. And I might have trades on that would be long a telco and short a utility, and as an example. Correct me if I'm wrong, but same thing with your example, Google and Visa. Right? right? Google's a communication services stock. Yeah. And Visa is a financial stock. That's right. They're both large cap tech stocks. They're, so it, that's what they are. But. So the, the first part of the process is really, it sounds like looking at the two stocks, do these exhibit a high degree of correlation? Yeah. Or are they driven driven by similar market dynamics, macro events, if you want to call it, yeah. over time and then digging into the fundamentals? I think what you're trying to say is when I'm putting on the pair, Am I making sure that I'm not taking on any unintended exposures to something other than stock picking? That's much better articulated. And, and the answer is that's that's the first and foremost thing that I'm trying to do. And so yes, Google and Visa, they're large cap, high quality tech stocks. One's in communication, one's in financials, neither are in tech, so it shows up wonky. And the, you know, I've got to imagine that there's some market drift too from time to yeah. time. Like yeah. if you're running equal parts in the tech sector and for whatever particular reason, your long portfolio, goes up more than your yeah. short portfolio moves, then obviously that's gonna skew. And trying to rebalance all the time, I'd imagine would just generate a ton of cost. It'd be expensive, it'd be ineffective, and it would be detrimental to return. So we definitely balance it, but this is not something we're gonna do every day. Yeah, and, and just the last thing before we move off of this, this topic is, it's not reflecting any sort of like a bullish or bearish stance of you. So for instance, no. if somebody sees, uh, I don't know, net 5% long in, Infotech, it's not saying Brett's bullish necessarily on tech, broadly no. speaking. No. Okay, that's good. I just wanted to clarify that, certainly for folks at home. Why don't we talk a little bit about, we haven't gone over probably an important part of short selling. I know we only have a few minutes left, uh, but risk. Like you're a portfolio manager who is running, uh, at least in terms of notional value, like a decent sized short portfolio, right? 100%. Yep. And so, like, how do you think of risk within the portfolio? How do you combat it? You already talked about how you mentioned, like, keeping your eye on, on neutralizing effects where you can. And, and what folks do you have at your disposal in order to help out with that? Yeah. So there's the portfolio construction piece about unintended risks, which we've already talked about. Yeah. In addition to that, on the short side, you have cost of borrow. So it costs you something to short a stock. On average, it's about 35 basis points a year. Some stocks have much higher cost of borrow, and that means that it is very heavily shorted. And when you're engaged in those stocks, you are taking on the risk of a short squeeze. And that's all the stuff that we know from two years ago, GameStop and, and all the rest of that. And so for me in general, I just try and stay away from that. There's nothing wrong with doing it, but basically what you're saying is if you're taking on a high cost of borrow, you need to be really right, really fast. Mm -hmm. So I just kind of steer clear of that. In terms of risk, we have a huge risk team. Make sure we have all our exposures in check. We uh, get a report from them every week. I have real-time risk exposures. And we have every three months like a very large risk meeting, 60 pages, go through everything. We have some specialized software that identifies which stocks are at risk of a squeeze. And again, that's sort of a filtering mechanism for me to just avoid them. And then I think the last thing, which is probably the most important thing, is position sizing. So I, I have more shorts than I do long, which means that they're going to be smaller positions. And that's on purpose because, um, because of the short squeeze dynamic. So if I have a small position and it goes up 50% on nothing mm -hmm. and my thesis hasn't changed, I want to make sure that I can stomach that, maybe add to it, but I won't be forced to sell it. If it was a large position, I might be forced to sell it. And so that's a, a big portion of my risk control. 
Before we kind of wrap things up, I know we only have a minute or two left, um, but maybe just end with talking about, again, going back to like the concurrent environment that we're in right now, your strategy. We've talked about the fact, like lower volatility profile, less correlation to that of broader traditional assets. Like what going forward for an investor to utilize this fund, where do you see it fitting into someone's portfolio or what do you think its kind of value proposition is? from the words of the portfolio manager. I think in terms of uh, where it fits in is diversification. And so diversification does not mean a whole bunch of different things. We learned that in 2022, when a whole bunch of different things all traded in the same direction. Mm -hmm. Real estate was bad, stocks were bad, bonds were bad, crypto was bad, commodities were bad, everything was bad. So you could have owned them all, it wouldn't have mattered. Because we don't have any correlation with any other underlying asset class, this doesn't behave like anything else. So this is something that behaves different, which is what you need for diversification. It's got a lower volatility profile, which uh, obviously helps your risk metrics if that's something you're looking at. And I think this is something that over time we can, we've proven we can generate returns with independent of the market direction. So you're not making a bet on the market direction. So I think it belongs in everyone's portfolio in, in a big way. That's great. Yeah, I, th I think that a lot of that resonates with me most certainly. And I think most investors out there have a pretty big budget for strategies that are, call it lower down the risk spectrum, that are looking to generate that modest return on a consistent basis, but add that element of diversification that you were alluding to. Brett, thanks so much for your time today. And thanks so much to everyone at home for tuning in and have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.